Every Christmas at our house, we get these chocolate mint truffles uh, by a company called Rayo Thompson. And they're so good that, they're so good, in fact, that I have a hard time um, biting them because I just kind of put the whole thing in my mouth. They're so good, they're so rich. Every time I do it, I do the same thing every year, and Susan and Rebecca both say to me, Paul, or, you know, Dad, you got to savor it. Don't, you can't put the whole thing in your mouth. you got to take little, and they show me, they show me. See, like this, they do a little illustration. This is how you eat it. They take a little bite out of it, and they savor it. And I always say to them, I am savoring it. It's just I want the whole, I want the whole thing in there, <clears throat> and I want to savor all of it. And they say, no, you're doing it wrong. And because uh, from their point of view, you've got, you got to stretch this out and get, get all the richness out of it. Well, we're going to go to Paul's letter in Galatians. We've been going through Galatians. It's probably going to take me 13 weeks to do this. This is week four. And it's like that truffle. It's like you want to get all the richness out of it. You don't want to just, you don't want to just pop the letter in and move on. And that's meditating on Scripture and having Scripture massage its way into our hearts and God's grace. It's like that truffle that's supposed to just be you know, savored and enjoyed. And, and so we're going to go to God's text that way this morning. The text is Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to read in a minute verses 11 to 21. But I have to give you some context because we're jumping in mid-conversation. That's a bad way to read the Bible. So Paul's letter to the Galatians is really written in the middle of this massive quarrel. He's actually really upset. Galatians is an interesting letter because it's got a tone that's different than all the other letters. The first chapter of Galatians, it's really clear Paul's actually really angry. He's really passionate. When you read it in the original language in Greek, um, you, what you notice is it's like, this is really different than the other letters. The other letters would flow from grace and peace to you to thankfulness. But Galatians doesn't. It actually goes grace and peace to you. What are you guys doing? It's a totally different tone. And the reason for that is because uh, the, the gospel is on the chopping block and um, it's being threatened by a false gospel of works. And uh, the, nature of the, the nature of the gospel, the nature of the true gospel, is total and complete substitution. The nature of the false gospel is contribution. And Paul refuses that. The gospel says Christ alone is enough. The false gospel said Christ plus your obedience to the law Christ's work plus your work, Christ's life plus your life, that equals salvation. And Paul says, no way. I will not accept that. So he gets really upset about it. Now, the ancient world, Greco-Roman world, honors same culture. So the perversion of the gospel was really easy to accept. Because if you've been raised your whole life as a little, as a little Greek or as a little Roman, being taught about you know, virtue and glory and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, living to, you know, really wanting to be divine. You know, there's, there's a, 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 an essay by a man named Alan Bloom who wrote on Plato's Republic, and in his essay he says, every Greek aspired to be divine, no Greek could ever be divine, but no Greek ever stopped trying. So if you're raised in that kind of a culture, and then somebody comes along and says, it's what Jesus Christ did plus your virtue." Plus, keeping this law, here's some ceremonial practices you can do. You would, you would think, no, that, that makes sense. I'm contributing. Well, Paul said, there's no way. Your contribution was the sin that made your salvation necessary. And so Paul rejects any sort of contribution. And we live in a reciprocal economy. We live in an economy of earning, of buying and selling. So for us, the false gospel is very easy to accept as moderns. 
right, to hear, yes, Jesus, what Jesus did at the cross is amazing, but that's not enough to save you. It's what he did and what you do on Monday when you leave this place. That's saving you. See, that's the false gospel. So Paul rejected that. So we come now to the text where we're about to see a, um, it's a legendary confrontation we're about to read. This is Paul and Peter in Antioch. It's a confrontation where Paul opposes Peter in a, in a really passionate way. We're about to see it. And I don't know if you've ever had to have a conversation, a confrontation with somebody you love, but it's trepidatious because there's something in your heart that's like, if I'm, if I'm really bold and I'm really honest about this, this, this problem, you might leave me. You might not love me. You might not abandon me. So Paul isn't just a raging wolverine who's angry and, you know, and he's not loving. He actually is what's driving his anger. It's not just a, a human anger. It's actually a, it's actually a love for the church. And it's a love for Peter. And we're about to see it. And, and uh, so we go to Galatians chapter 2. We start reading in verse 11. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though, a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves were were Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we've believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I were to rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word. Now here's today's sermon in a sentence. We could never do enough to clean ourselves up and be acceptable to God, but Christ is enough, and we are in him. So we're going to look at this confrontation, and we're going to ask three three questions of this text this morning. What was at the heart of the confrontation? What is the relevance of the confrontation? And how do we benefit from this confrontation? What is the heart, what is the relevance, and how do we benefit? So first, let's look at the heart. What's the heart of the confrontation? Well, first of all, there's a shift in the letter. And if you read, if, if you read it from chapter 1 all the way through to what I just read, you're going to notice there's a huge shift. First, Paul is standing with Peter, 
in Jerusalem, and now he's opposing Peter in Antioch. Paul went from standing with him to opposing him. So something massive happened. What is at the heart of this thing? Kids, look down at your notes. You see, what happened was the false teachers were saying, Jesus plus the law is what makes you acceptable to God. And Peter's actions confirmed that false teaching, what Peter did. We're going we're to blow it out in a minute. But the way Peter was acting confirmed the false teaching. And so Paul had to get involved, and he got involved in a real passionate way. And so Peter, he, Peter who was a Jew, he began eating with the Gentiles at the beginning of, of, of dinner. Um, and the reason that he began eating with them in the first place was because God showed him that the Gentiles were cleansed by Christ. And the, if you're new to the church or you're new to the Bible, the word Gentile, it simply means everybody from every other nation who's not a Jew. And so in Acts chapter 10, you can read about it. God gives Peter a vision, and, he's, and the, in the vision, Paul is essentially saying, whatever I call clean is clean. And if I call these people clean in Christ, they're clean. Every nation, every tribe, every culture, everybody who places their faith in Christ is clean. You don't have to become one homogenous culture in order to be okay with God. So Peter knew that. That's why he started eating in the first place. Uh, but then he backs away. And so in verse 14, you'd notice that Paul doesn't call this, he doesn't see it as rude. He doesn't see it as, oh, you're not Peter, you're not being hospitable. You're going to offend these Greeks. Paul sees it as having an us and them prejudice is a direct threat to the gospel. The us and them prejudice on the basis of externals, on the basis of the law, on the basis of ceremonial worship, that's, that's a threat to the gospel, and Paul won't have it. And because the gospel says that we trust in Christ and his perfection, and we're not going to keep God's law to perfection. We're not going to make ourselves acceptable. But what happened was Peter, who was so afraid for his reputation, he removed himself from, quote-unquote, those people. And then he went and he went and he sat at the, kid, at the cool kid table. Right? Remember high school, the cool kid tables? Remember walking through the hallway, the cool kids sit in that area of the foyer, they sit in that hallway, that's where the cool kids are. Right? If you sit at the wrong table with the wrong people, that does a particular thing to your reputation. Remember all that nonsense? That's what's going on here. The who's, the religious who's who walk in, and Peter picks up his tray, and he goes, I think I should sit somewhere else. I better go find the cool kid table, because the, the religious who's who think these people are unclean. And I'm a good guy. I'm one of the good guys. I need everybody to know that I'm clean. So in order for everybody to know that I'm clean, I'm going to go and sit with everybody else who the religious who who think is clean. That's what's going on. And Paul, Paul doesn't go, oh, you know, well, your heart's in the right. But Paul goes, this is, this is a major threat to the gospel because you're confirming a false doctrine it's not just about his action false teaching was going out and peter's actions were saying yep that teaching's true it's true it's jesus plus the law that's what his action was saying and so this is a this is a big deal now um in the if you read this text in the greek the word for out of line if you look down there it says he when i noticed they were out of step with the gospel it's the word is orthopodusine Ortho is where, means straight. It's where we get like orthodontists, orthopedic surgeons. It's to straighten things out. And so Paul, what, what Paul says about it is, you're totally out of line. You know, when, if, somebody, if somebody withstands you to your face, right? it's going down for real. It's on like Donkey Kong. You follow? I mean, I'm paraphrasing Greek, but it's still, I'm in step with the tone of the Greek. Okay, if somebody gets up in your face and they say, it's on like Donkey Kong. You are orthopodusine. You are out of step. You're out of line. 
Like, that's pretty intense. And it's public. It's like, that's why this is a legendary conflict. But Paul's not just raging. He's not having a rager. He loves Peter. He loves the church. But this is what's at the heart of the conflict. Now, that word, um, and then he says that he, in verse 11, that word opposed. And, and I'm not just giving you Greek lessons for no reason. I want to show you something really interesting. That word opposed, the Greek word is, is antestant. And that word only appears once in the entire New Testament in that form. So in the whole new, so opposing in that particular form, in this particular way, in this particular spirit, it only appears once in the whole New Testament. If you read um, the ancient Greek uh, historian, and he was, an, he was a war general, and his name is uh, Thucydides, he uses this word all the time. If you read his accounts of how Athens and Sparta, right? He uses this, he uses this word opposed all the time. Because it means to stand up in front and oppose your enemy and not let go. It means you're not letting it go. You're not giving up ground. You know the whole this is Sparta situation, right? So this is what's happening. This is how intense this is. So Paul is there, and he, Paul is like, this is the gospel! <laughs> no, you're, you're sending a false message. That's how intense this is. It doesn't show up anywhere else in this form. That's what's at the heart of this. He won't let it go. But it's incredibly loving, which, which leads us to the next question. What's the relevance? That's what's at the heart of it. The heart of it is the gospel is on the, co- is on the chopping block. But what's the relevance of it? Well, the relevance of it is this. Kids, if you look down at your notes again, this is what you're going to find. It's that, you see, we're all capable of Peter's error, but we're also all capable of Paul's response. The relevance of this, the relevance of this confrontation is that we are capable of Peter's gospel-erasing error, because there's still parts of our hearts that are still disordered by our sin. That's the word you're looking for, kids. That, it's that our, there are still parts of our hearts that are disordered by our sin. So we're capable of doing what Peter did. But the good news is this. We're also capable of Paul's gospel-driven response because our hearts are being reordered by God's grace. Our hearts are disordered by sin, but they're being reordered by God's grace. We can all fall into the Jesus plus the life I'm living false gospel because our hearts are disordered and we live in a culture of earning. We can fall into that. But we are also capable of Paul's response of saying, no, 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 no. It's Christ alone. And I'm going to live to his glory from that position of great freedom. So Paul was, was not willing to cater to relationship at the expense of the gospel. If he did that, he wouldn't have been preserving unity. He would have been committing idolatry. If he saw Peter, if he saw Peter confirming a message that Jesus plus, to use Paul's words, Jesus plus works of the law saves you, and Paul goes, hey, you know what, we'll, just, we'll talk to him about that later. He would have been confirming something pretty serious. So Paul's actually incredibly loving in this confrontation and what he's doing. That's why he won't let it go. Right? So how are we capable of, of committing Peter's error? Well, we are, we're capable of doing it if we relate to each other in comparison and not compassion. Why did Peter move his tray and sit at the other table? Comparison. I'm better than you. I'm cleaner than you. I've grown up my whole life believing that people like me are better than people, than people like you. I'm clean, you're not. My culture is better than yours. Oh, your heritage is from that country? Well, we're from here. Right? We're all capable of, of doing that. 
And, and the hypocrisy of this um, was so infectious that you notice it says the other Jewish Christians did the same thing. So it wasn't just Peter moved this tray. Peter moved this tray, and then all the other Jewish Christians who were sitting with their... So imagine this. There's a multicultural table. All the, there's a bunch of different cultures represented. It's beautiful. It's the gospel. And all of a sudden, Peter goes, I'm cleaner than you. And all the other Christians go, yeah, actually, that's right. I think we're cleaner than you. And Barnabas, whose name means the son of encouragement, is now the son of discouragement. Because he does it. Do you see that? The Bible doesn't waste any words. And Barnabas, remember that guy? Oh, we all want a Barnabas in our life. Barnabas is like, yeah, maybe I'm cleaner than them too. That's what happened. And Paul sees this and he goes, wow, and he blows a gasket. He's like, this is the anti-gospel. This is the opposite of the gospel. What's going on here? So this is, because there are still unevangelized parts in our hearts, we're all capable of Peter's sin, of living in comparison. In this room, looking across the aisle, in front of us, behind us, right? Walking around having coffee after. In a, in a spirit of comparison. It's possible. Possible for us to do it. It's possible to say, yeah, well, you know, we'll sit with each other, but we're not going to eat with each other. We're going to be cordial with each other, but we're not going to share our lives with each other. We're going to just be a friendly, smiley church, but we're not going to be, but we're not going to be a gospel-driven church, though, because of the, because really, I still think I'm better than you. So I mean, if, as long as you show up and you're squeaky clean and sanctified and righteous, and your family is banging on all cylinders, and your kids are sitting in a row with you in church, I'm your friend. But if you come in here drunk, hungover, you slept with the wrong person on Saturday night, and you're crying and vomiting all over yourself, then we're not interested. Because we're, clearly, we're better than you. So, this whole thing, Paul is going, whoa, whoa, we have to separate what saves a person from the life that we live as a result of being saved. He's like, what saves you, and then the life you live as a result of that great saving grace, the, the, the reforming trajectory of that rescue I need to separate so that you don't think you're saved by your reform. You're saved by a rescue that results in beautiful and glorious reform. And so Paul won't have it. But we're, it's possible. But maybe it's not nationalism. You know, maybe, we wouldn't, maybe you wouldn't say that. Maybe it's not nationalism. Say, well, my culture is better than you. My family is better than yours. Maybe it's denominationalism. Right? As Redeemer grows and there's folks here, there are already folks here from all these different streams and backgrounds. Oh, you use that catechism? Hmm. We use this one. Oh, you don't have catechism? Hmm. Interesting. Oh, you don't uh, read your Bible after dinner every single night of the week like we do? Hmm. No, no, I mean, yeah, no, sure, no. I mean, we'll st- I'll still talk to you. But I'm not sure we can really... Do you understand? Works of the law. Good and beautiful things. Good and beautiful things that we should all be up to because our hearts have been exploded by grace. I'm not minimizing the beauty of Christian discipline. It's glorious bread that feeds our souls. But we have to reorder it. It's not what's saving us. But we can do that. Right? Maybe it's not those things. Maybe it's... Maybe it's Oh, you eat that and not that? 
Oh, your kids are in public school? Mm. Wow. Amazing. Oh, your kids are in Christian school? Mm. What's it like living in that bubble? Wow. Oh, your kids are homeschooled? Okay. No, I mean, hey, you know, whatever. Whatever floats your boat. I mean, people are crazy, not not as sanctified as I am. I threw my kids into the cesspool of public high school because I believe the gospel. Yeah. You've got your kids in Christian school. You homeschooled your kids because you're a... Right? So, I could do this all day. And Paul goes, hold on a second. There's a threat here that's going to be divisive if we start judging each other on the basis of our externals. And so it's possible, right? And the reason why, it's, the reason why this is relevant as well is because... What is because the core of Christianity is what Christ did. But in today's modern culture, it's easy to believe that the core of Christianity is what we're doing. If you get in an elevator and you had one minute to tell somebody what Christian faith was all about, if all the Christians in all of Canada got in an elevator at the same time and pushed and they were on the first floor, and they pushed the second floor, and somebody turned to them in the elevator and said, you know what, I just got a question for you. What's Christian faith all about? Do you know what? There would be scores and scores and scores of Christians who would say, oh my goodness, I've got 30 seconds. Here's what Christian faith is about. Love God, love people. Scores of people would say that. And what is that? The law. That's not the gospel. That's the glorious life we live as a result of the gospel. Jesus summarizes the law in Matthew 22. I just gave it to you. Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Which is, of course, we've got to fall on grace because none of us can actually pull that off. But, if you, but many Christians, if you asked me not too long ago and, and said, you got 30 seconds, what Christian, what's, Christian, what's Christianity all about? Love God, love people. What would we do? We'd give them the law. What's Christianity all about? Here's what I'm doing. I'm loving God and I'm loving people. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. But that's not the core. That's what, that's what Galatians is all about. As Paul's like, stop the bus. Your Christian faith is not centered in what you're doing. It's centered in what Christ has done. And when, the more you marvel at that, the more your heart catches on fire and you want to live to the glory of the one who saved you in his great grace. And the more your heart is reformed, you say, yes, like David said, oh, how I love your law. Yes, I want to love you with my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. Yes, I want to forsake things that would cause me to not give you glory. Yes, I want to love my neighbor. Yes, I want to forsake the kinds of behaviors that would cause me to not love my neighbor. Yes, that's what I want. That's what God's saving grace does. But that's why this is so incredibly relevant even to today. So what this text does is it invites us to examine our own hearts. Not examine, not, not pass judgment on the person sitting next to you. Man, it's a good thing they're here today. Because I have been here for five months and they have not said hello to me. If you're playing the, if you're playing the I hope the church is friendly and says hello to me game, you're going to live a disappointed life. Because this is not a church, this is not a room full of good people. This is a room full of people worshiping the one who was perfectly good. This is a room of forgiven people. We want to be good. I mean, we really do. We want to be loving. 
We want to look outside ourselves and notice that person standing. Oh my goodness, I never know. I mean, that's what we want. To, that's who we want to be. Um, but don't confuse us with Jesus. Is what I'm saying. That's what we want. That's the life we want to live. But we've got to fall on grace for that. You know, one of the greatest criticisms of the church is that the church is full of hypocrites. That's a, that's a, good, that's a good description of the church. Right? Because, but, but that's, a, that, and the reason I say that is not because I'm, I'm uh, bad-mouthing the church. I love the church. I've given my whole, I'm giving my life for the church. It's that that's a good description of human beings. Right? Oh, the church is full of hypocrites. Well, of course it is, because no human lives up to their own standard. It doesn't matter what worldview you're from. If you're a person here today and you're from non-faith, and I asked you, do you think you should love your neighbor, you're going to say yes. And then if I asked you if there's times that you don't love your neighbor, you're going to say yes, unless you're delusional, right? But you're an intelligent person, so you're not delusional. So you're going to confess that even by your own standard, you don't live up to your own standard. So you're a hypocrite too. So come on in and join us. Uh, we're one big happy bunch of people who are thankful that Jesus is perfect and we're putting all our chips on him, right? And so that's why this, this confrontation was absolutely relevant. The, the gospel is the great equalizer because it declares that in Christ we're all clean. So it, it relocates our identity. Peter had an identity crisis, which is why he left the table. And then all the other Christians had an identity crisis, which is why they left the table. And then Barnabas, the son of encouragement, has an identity crisis, which is why he left the table. But the gospel relocates our identity so that we don't push back from the table. Because the gospel relocates our identity into being accepted and loved by God. And so we're, we're free now to love our neighbor. But if your identity isn't liberated by the gospel of God's grace, which of course is grace is doing in us more and more. But if it isn't liberated, then we're going to seek continually to locate our identity in something else. To clean us up, to justify us, to make us seem, believe in our own hearts that we're okay. Right? So if you look at, down at your notes again, kids, um, you're going to notice something about Paul's response. How, how did, so that's, we're capable of Peter's sin, but we're also capable of Paul's response. Right? And I would be amiss if I just dismissed the service and y'all went home and said, yeah, we're worms. That's not the gospel. Right? That's not the good news of the gospel. Because we are capable of Paul's response. Notice what Paul does. This is how Paul handles it. In verse 15, he doesn't begin by pointing at Peter's behavior. He points Peter to the gospel. How does Paul handle the confrontation? How does the gospel reshape how we handle confrontation? We don't begin by pointing at the behavior. We point them back to the gospel. There's a dignity there. There's a love there. That's why this confrontation is it's super bold, like I've been saying, but it's also incredibly loving. Because he doesn't just say to Peter, Peter, stop being a racist. Racism is a sin. Which Peter was being a racist, and racism is a sin. But Paul had to get underneath the behavior to what was driving it. So Paul doesn't say to Peter, what are you doing? You're being a racist. Paul says, Peter, you're justified. But he goes right back to the gospel of justification. So he can get underneath. You're trying to get through your works something that Christ gave in his grace. And you, you clamoring after this appearance of cleanliness is driving your sin. And whenever you and I forget our identity and our rest in gospel of grace, we can be very unloving towards others because we're seeking different ways of, in those moments, justifying ourselves. 
And that manifests in all kinds of unloving behavior towards, towards people. And so what Paul says is, he says to Peter, he says, your acceptance before God is not because of certain behaviors you think are making you clean. Christ made you clean. Therefore, why are you expecting others to make themselves acceptable before God through their certain behaviors to make them clean? Christ made them clean. And so the essence of Paul's confrontation, which is really encouraging for us who are resting in this grace more and more that can reform our confrontation, the essence of it is he says, Peter, you've forgotten your own gracious welcome in Christ. And because you've forgotten your own gracious welcome in Christ, you're not extending a gracious welcome here. You picked up your tray table. But if you would remember your gracious welcome in Christ and how you got that gracious welcome, P.S. doing nothing, you're now free to extend that gracious welcome. And that helps us, I believe, church, to have a culture of grace and of love and compassion and not comparison on the basis of externals. Right? And so the way to think about this is that this passionate Paul, it's like picture... Picture a mother standing in a group of people and she looks over the shoulder of somebody in that group and she sees her child in great danger. Her little toddler is about to hurt themselves. What does that mother do? Does that mother go, excuse me, could I just, get, could I just sneak by you for a second? Pardon me. If I could just, um, in a minute, if you could just let me through, that would be really... That's why Galatians sounds the way it does. Paul loves the church, gave his life for the church. Paul loves Peter. And Paul sees this thing go down, and Paul is like that mother who sees her child in danger. That mom is not going to ask you permission to move you out of the way. That mother is going to go through you like a linebacker, like a 747 out of Baltimore, like a, like a bat out of hell. Bang! Pow! Bodies everywhere. Whoa! What's happening? That mother's like, she's after her child. That's the tone of Galatians. It's driven by incredible gospel love and grace. But it's also, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't, don't bring this Jesus plus stuff in here. You will blow the church up. Don't bring Jesus plus your externals in here. You will blow the unity apart. So Paul says, no. And that's what, and, but, but then when we see how he confronts with this great love, he points Peter not to his behavior, doesn't rub his nose in his behavior, he points to the gospel. Look down at your notes, kids. It's because the gospel announces that we are more sinful than we'd admit, but we're also more loved than we would ever imagine. To steal from Tim Keller, Borrow. He's a good friend of mine. He doesn't know I exist, but he's such a great friend. One day I hope I get to meet him and shake his hand and say thank you so much for letting me steal all your sermons um so it, it reshapes how we it reached the gospel reshapes how we confront and it's loving because notice that paul's confrontation it's pointing to peter's value it's pointing to peter's dignity so we point to value and dignity as we are opposing behavior right so Paul, Paul's not permitting, you know, anything goes in the church any more than we're going to permit anything goes in the church. But we're going to be incredibly loving and incredibly gracious in any of the confrontations that has to happen, right? With, with our wives, with our kids, with our friends across the aisle. There's a love and a grace there that, that informs that because we recognize that we're recipients of that great grace. 
And it's, it's, it's important to note that, that Paul goes to the gospel because God's law says, do this, not that. But God's gospel is what reforms our hearts to want this, not that. So God's law guides us, but it's, it's God's grace that does the reform, the reform in us. And that's why the appeal is framed that way. Which leads us to the final thing this morning as we prepare to close. This is closing number one, by the way. Um, so how do we benefit from all this? If that was what it was at the heart, now that's kind of the relevant, relevance of it. How is it that we benefit? Kids, if you look down at your notes, this is the benefit. It's that we, because that confrontation happened, the gospel was preserved. And so we have a new understanding of our relationship with God's law. The relationship we have with God's law is that God's law guides us, right? Keeping God's law isn't what saves us. We have a totally new relationship with it. And so we've been justified, verse 16 says, justified by faith. It's central to Paul's theology. It runs through all of his letters. It runs through the whole New Testament, right? Not our action, but Christ's action. So the context of this whole thing is cleanliness. The question really at hand is, what makes you clean? And then Paul comes and he gives a phrase, justified by faith. Paul doesn't say cleansed by faith. It's interesting. This whole entire thing is about being clean. And then Paul comes out and he doesn't say, Peter, you've been cleaned by faith. Even though in Christ we are clean. Paul says justified by faith. Why does he do that? Because being clean is a condition. If I'm clean, then that's a condition based on the life I'm living. What are my thoughts like? What are my words like? What are my actions like? What are my habits like? Well, if they're loving 24-7, then I'm clean. It's a condition. Being justified is a legal condition. Christ's thoughts, Christ's words, Christ's actions, Christ's motives were pure 24-7. So united to Christ, I'm justified. His cleanliness is mine. I weave in and out of cleanliness. You weave in and out of cleanliness. Right? In the, in the, during the time of the Reformation, Luther took this doctrine here that we see here. You see it in Romans 7. You see it all over the place. You see it again in Galatians 4, uh, 4 and 5 when he talks about, we're going to get there in a couple of weeks, uh, about the battle, the civil war inside of us. And Luther, in, in the Latin, the phrase was simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneous, simul, simultaneously, justus, justified, et peccator, and sinner. Simultaneously justified and sinner. That's the condition of the Christian. Our, our status is irreversibly righteous in Christ. Our substance remains sinful. Christ is increasingly doing work in our hearts, but we're all on the, bend. We're all on the mend. So that's why Paul comes into this conversation about cleansing, cleanliness and he says you're justified by Christ, which is good news. Because then it takes cleanliness out of your hands and it puts them in Christ's capable hands. He says you're not clean based on the life that you're living tomorrow. You're not clean in here, Redeemer, based on, on what you're up to this last week. You're clean based on what Christ did. You are in him considered righteous. It is beautiful and it is glorious. And so that's why Paul gives us uh, the, the text that he does, in the way, uh, this phrase that he does, justified, in the way that he does. It's because Jesus is righteous in his nature, and we are declared righteous by his grace.
And so that is how we benefit from uh, this confrontation actually happening. It's because the understanding of our justification, it propels our obedience from absolute freedom. False teaching says you obey in order to be accepted. You obey in order to be blessed. You obey in order to find favor with God. But the gospel says that by grace, you're already accepted. You're already blessed. You already have the favor of God. You're free to obey. False teaching insists you get yourself into God's graces. And staying there is hinging on your obedience. But the gospel says and insists that Christ got you into God's graces. And you're being kept there by his perfect obedience. False teaching always connects obedience to God with the need to earn things from him, and that makes it slavery. The gospel connects obedience with imitating God, which makes our obedience from joy and from freedom. And so as we increasingly grasp this gospel, we marvel at grace, and knowing that we can't do anything for God makes us want to live our lives doing everything for God. It's the beauty of his grace. We could never do enough to clean ourselves up. But Christ is enough, and we're in him. Let's pray.